And all God's people said what? Amen. <laughs> Amen. May God write it on our hearts. And we may not sin against him. This is a weird passage. But it's beautiful. And it really challenges the reader when we study it today to get down in their heart the anchor. Get the anchor down. The anchor of your life, the anchor of faith, the anchor of thinking, the anchor of living. Get your life and embed it deep into the promises of God. Get the anchor down is the title of our sermon this morning. And if we consider in the Bible what it means to have Jesus as a steadfast anchor of the soul like we've sang about, we need to remember that it's God who said that. You know, in Hebrews 6, 19 through 20, the, the Word of God says this. We, as Christians, have uh, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. This morning, we will study how to have anchor-like faith because of what God has done. Getting the anchor of your soul down into God's promises is something that is essential to Christian living. Okay, just for example, just consider with me this morning how an anchor works when it comes to a boat and a body of water. I remember going on a deep sea fishing trip with my wife and some friends, and we actually were in the bay and went up river down near Galveston. And up the river where we were catching these fish in the brackish water, it was very windy. And so when we first started, and I wasn't paying attention, I was trying to fish, but our guide didn't drop the anchor initially. And I had taken stock of where we were, and then we started fishing. And I was so enthralled in trying to like make sure my line and bait and things were happening and by the time I looked up again, that breeze, which was not altogether too windy, had blown us almost 200 yards downriver. And so we went on up again. And the next time, our guide dropped the anchor. And I made note and saw where I was. And for that whole next hour as we caught fish there, uh, we didn't move but maybe 30 feet either side of where we were supposed to be. Now, granted, the wind was still blowing and the, 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 the elements were still upon us. We were still moving a, a little bit back and forth. But because the anchor had gone through the water into the shallow soil and into the rock bed, the hard part of the ground, we were secured. In the same way, no matter what happens in life, those possessed by Christ, those believing the gospel, living by faith, will remain connected to God in the same way. That's what Genesis 15 is about, getting down the anchor of faith. Often a charge is laid against Old Testament passages like this, that Christ is forced upon it, or that the text rather you know, really doesn't have him being there. Today I hope, uh, by the end of it, that we can all see the explicit gospel that God is uh, saving Abraham by and, and, and also keeping him by. Today we see Abram before he was Abraham. Uh, Father Abraham had no sons at this point. No sons has Father Abraham. He's childless, uh, at least regarding an heir that God has promised. And he gets the anchor down into the rocks, the good news of God. This passage is rich with challenge. Uh, it follows a clear pattern that's going to serve as our outline this morning as we look at it. So if you're taking any kind of notes, the first uh, thing we're going to see is God's promises. And this, this is kind of how the outline goes. In this passage, this narrative, this story, a lot like we've been in Acts, this is historical narrative also as it records the story of Abram and his, and his life. So we see God's promises and then next thing we see today is fear and doubt. God's promises, fear and doubt. 
And then God's promises realized. So it's God's promises in the passage. Oh, fear and doubt. And then a realization. God's promises realized. And then the fourth thing we're going to see is more of God's promises and more fear and doubt. And then finally, we're going to see God's promises applied. So there's stuff in between, but really it's God's promises realized in this passage and God's promises applied in this passage. Let's talk first about some background, because if you notice, your text began with, uh, after these things. Let's catch up on this story. If you don't know it, God has called this man named Abram, uh, who some of us know is Abraham. So think about our children singing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, so are you. It's that guy. And the idea here is that God has called him. God has called this man, Abram, out of paganism. He is from where Babylon is. He's a Chaldean um, of the Chaldees in Ur. God, as he has called him to follow him and his whole household, he's promised Abram that he descendants, uh, that those descendants would be numerous. But there's a problem in Abram's life that this text doesn't show us. His wife, Sarai, who will become she is barren and she cannot have children. God has also promised Abram that he will have a land to live in and to call his own. Right now he's nomadic. He's a sojourner moving around, but he's going to have a land God has promised and an ever-growing community to be there with. So servants and children and, uh, you know, descendants. But right now he hasn't settled. In the past uh, chapters, Abram's nephew Lot has been taken by some kings we know that Abram, in the past stories before this moment, has literally gone out and fought wars and defeated these kings with his small army of people that he has. It would have made a great movie, his life. I mean, just huge, awesome victories in battle. After that victory, we've had this story where uh, a priest king named Melchizedek, don't know much about him, other than when he shows up, Abram gives him 10%, a tithe of what he has, and uh, they, they share a meal together, and uh, he foreshadows this Melchizedek guy, but Abram has this really high emotional, really awesome, powerful moment where he beats these kings. He meets this godly priest named Melchizedek. And so before our text, Abram has fought battles in front of people and won them. He's been strengthened by the Lord and he's done amazing things. But in our passage, we find after these things. And what it implies is, is that now Abram is alone. He's alone. He's in that private hour. And something happens to him. When he's alone, and he remembers his problems, he begins to think about them over God's promises. You been there? You been where Abram is? I hope you have. I think you probably have. You know God's promises. You are assured of them in your head, but your heart cannot seem to understand them. It can't grasp them. They feel empty. They feel powerless. They feel worthless. And you question and you doubt. You begin to think and maybe something called fear begins to settle in your heart. Fear, doubt, struggle. That's what God uses to save Abram. <laughs> he can do this today as well. That's the background. What are God's promises? God's promises are right there in verse 1. God shows up right in the middle of fear and doubt and worry in Abram's life, and he says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I love it. God's promises. That's the first thing we see in this passage. 
when a man is low, when a man is down, when he is struggling to answer what God has really done, after these things, refers to everything we just covered, and then God, it says, speaks in a vision. Now, Abram is having a vision here in the first part of the text. A vision really equals God's Word being revealed clearly. You know, all dreams that we have are not visions. So we all dream, but all dreams that we have are not visions. But some visions can, can be dreams. Now, nonetheless, we should be stewards of our dreams. And, and it's important to see here that, uh, that, that God finds a way to communicate His promises to Abram, His child whom He loves, even when it takes the cover of sleep to do so. So Abram falls into this vision, this, this sleep, this, and, and hears from the Lord a word. It's important, I think, to see that. God's promises come in this form of rest that Abram is in. He reminds Abram, he says, I'm your shield of protection. If you worry, do you not remember I've protected you from your enemies? And I'm going to protect you, is the idea of God saying this promise. Your reward will be great. In other words, my protection will produce you know, my promise. And then lastly, he reminds him of this great reward. He reminds him that he is God's chosen instrument, that he will reward him, and it will be very great. He will have an heir, and he will have land are implied here. And how do we know that? Well, we know because of the fear and doubt. Before we talk about the fear and doubt, though, do you realize God here is short, God is sweet, God is pointed, with no need of elaborating? Okay, God, God's promises are simple. We complicate them. God makes them very clear to understand. Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield for you, Abram. I'm a protector for you. And I will do what I said. And yet, verse 2 and 3. And you already heard it. So I'll read it again. But if you could just understand. And when he says, oh Lord God. Right? There is an edge of doubt and fear in all of these verses. 2 and 3 here. Okay, Abram states his case twice, explicitly first. Who am I supposed to pick? Some, some servant of mine, Eliezer of Damascus? I mean, this man who's not, he's one of my servants, but he's not me. Is he going to be the one that has children? I imagine, since Abram has this large army, he has these large uh, acquaintances, nephews and such. We know Lot is going to have children, right? He's seeing everybody else that's getting God's promises and not him among his people. And he looks around and he says, Lord God, what will you give me? Because I continue to be barren, me and Sarah. Abram's honest about his fear. He's honest about his doubt. He's honest about his problem that he has. Okay, With knowing God in a limited fashion, he can ascend the mountain of understanding. His intellect here shows that he can at least listen to God's promises and can discern when he does or doesn't have them. For now, he seems only to know, not believe. That's because of the fear in him. But I want, to, I want you to see, as we look at his fear and doubt, that he starts it. And so inside of it, there's this, um, you know, there's this temptation, there's this clear not believing that's going on in, in Abram's heart. And this tiny lie that, you know, that God is good, because he says, oh Lord God, right? He addresses God as being one who's in control of his life. But he almost seems to say this tiny lie that, God, you're good, but not toward me. So he, he's faithful in a general sense. But he seems to be allergic to the specifics <laughs> or doubting the specifics for himself. 
this fear and doubt, it, it just assails Abram's belief. It, it chokes out his desire to obey Yahweh. The once giant man standing on the battlefield, believing God as he gave him power to conquer kings, can barely lift his eyes to heaven in faith and trust the specifics of God's word. He's assailed and challenged. His life, if it is in the hands of the Almighty, doesn't, doesn't feel like God's going to do what he says. So in other words, with his free will that he has, he freely distrusts the Almighty. With his will here to try to contemplate God's promises, he realizes that for him, it's bound. His will is bound continually in this doubt. God has said and done great things, but God hasn't fully kept his promise, so Abram thinks. So intellectually, though, he knows God and wants to choose God. Wretched man that he is, all he finds is what? Fear and doubt. Fear and doubt. Slavery to the lies. The lies. Now, he does question God. He petitions the Lord. I think this is very important for us to struggle in times of unbelief. He, he needs more understanding and he knows it. So he brings his uh, request to God earnestly. I, I think we should take heart from this today, beloved. We, we can read this. Abram's example shows us that you cannot outthink God. So in the fear and the doubt, he's, he's ready uh, with questions for God. He's not forsaking God. Abram's questions do have a sharp edge to them, right? They have an honest edge. He's walking very close to heavily doubting God's ability because his circumstances seem so impossible. But he's not committing blasphemy. He's instead holding out that there is hope. I think it's God who has started this hope in Abram. I think the scriptures would teach that it was him who called Abram out of Ur of Chaldees. And what God has put in his heart yearns desperately to find its anchor in the one who gave it. The little inkling spark of regenerating faith in Abram is, is groping intelligently toward God. And the circumstances as they mount seem like it can't get there. Abram's trusting in the insufficient Savior inside of himself that is called worry, that's called doubt, it's called fear, it's called anxiety. He's tempted to bow to it and worship it and let it have his mind and heart. And that poor man-centered way of thinking, interacting with God in that way, is, in fear and doubt, is bad news, not good news. So God's promises have been made known. Abram's doubt has now been shown. And now thirdly, we see in the text, God's promises realized. Okay? So God's promises have been given. Abram's fear and doubt has been shown. But now look at this. God's promises become realized. Verses 4 through 6, we'll read them again. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And what does God say? This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. <coughs> Excuse me. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now underline this in your Bible. And he believed the Lord and God, he counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Okay, God speaks. <laughs> Amazing, okay? Whispers in his ear, writes on his heart the truth. Straight into the doubt, straight into the fear comes the word of the Lord. The firstborn son during their times 
in this day inherited almost everything the father had. So to hear God say that Abram will have a son to be the heir of the promise would have been some seriously amazing news for him, yes. But that is just the promise restated, isn't it? God reminds him of his promises. So the, the realization hasn't happened. That's just God restating it. Notice, he takes Abram under the stars so he will realize this promise. I remember reading my kids a Bible lesson one time years ago from a kid's story Bible about this. And it makes the point, don't rush this idea. Abram would rush God in his intellectual ascent and his taking his own will and way and trying to own God's promises. He would rush God and he wouldn't fully realize them. But the story Bible I remember reading my kids was, as Abram stood out there, he maybe attempted it. Maybe he sat there and said, okay, I filled my mind with a bunch of nonsense. Let me try to fill it with this simple thing. One, two, three, four, nine thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine. And oh no, I've lost count again, says the story Bible I, I read my children. In other words, you can't number the stars, Abram. You instead can sit there and if you would just take a minute to gather the vastness and the power of God's expansive glory seen in the innumerable stars... Maybe it would spark in your heart what you need. A realization that I am far more in control and above your thinking. If you seek understanding and faith, go look at the stars. He tells Abram that his offspring will be as they are, innumerable. Now, Abram's reaction to the glory of God in the stars is silence, reverence, and I think regeneration. Or at least the understanding that God has done something. In other words, he doesn't look into those stars and see a direct one-to-one -one for his money problems or his family problems or his uh, inheritance problems or his fame problems or what he, others think of him or his dynasty or his successful career or some worldly pleasure, right? He gets his eyes where God told him to look. And what does God do? God silences his heart and shows him the greatest treasure and the greatest thing he's done. I mean, it's not an easy believism it's, or any other form of self-worship. It is undiluted smallness in the face of a great and almighty God. And this is the beginnings of realizing God's promises for Abram. It, notice the text is very clear, right? He believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Do you know the book of Romans? Paul picks this up and clues us in as this being the moment that God saved Abram by his grace. God who predestined him from the foundations of the world, as Ephesians 1, Paul would instruct, brings to the understanding of Abram's heart and mind fully as he looks upon God in the stars, as he thinks about the regenerating work that God only can do. And in Romans 4, it says, when, uh, what, what then shall we say, or what can we conclude, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. Not before God. You hear that? Not before God, Paul says. Does he have, you know, if it's just him, he has something to boast about. But not before God. He's silent. Verse 3 in Romans 4 says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The promises of God are realized for Abram when he sees that despite his circumstances and how hard his life looks, there is... One who made the stars. 
that has set his sights on Abram. And it changes this man. Do you understand this, beloved? Do you understand this conversion? Because we're really guilty, aren't we, of loving our good works. We really are. It's so easy to fall into the conversation Abram was just having in fear and doubt. It's so easy to atone for ourselves. It's so easy to try to put together a list and believe that God is working redemption as we work all of our faith out and our disciplines. And yet before a discipline, I mean, even before Genesis 17, Paul will point out, before circumcision is given, before the law comes as a delight, before that, God saved Abram and he knew it and he rested in it and he found hope in it, right? Gospel realization clues in on more of God and less of you. God's work of redemption, God's promises being realized has a lot more to do with God than it does you. You are a recipient. God is author. He's the founder of faith. Don't get it twisted. So, praise the Lord for His realized grace, right? God's promises are realized by Abram here. But that is not the end. Almost never in Scripture is that the end, okay? That is more good news for me and you today and really good for Abram in our text. Is he any different from us? Well, and yes, in, in the sense that his context is different. But no, no, because look what happens next. Our fourth point now. So, our fourth, so what have we seen? God's promises, fear and doubt, right? The realization of God's promises, know that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price, so honor God with your life, right? right? This, this born again, faith. But what comes next? You know what the fourth thing is that we see in the text? The first two points. <laughs> more of God's promises and then more fear and doubt. Okay, this is Christian living, beloved. The promise to Abram wasn't just descendants, it was also a land, right? So what do we see? More of God's promises. Look at verse 7 and 8. God then, again, loving this, this, this regenerated one, this child, this justified one, said this, I'm the Lord. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Notice, it is God who reminds Abram of the good works that he has prepared for him. Because look, going into the land that he'll possess, being a, developing a nation of, of children of promise, that descending grace that God wants to give through, uh, through, a through Abram to a, a bunch of people, the nations, it's God who reminds him. So after Abram is quiet and receives this born again heart, what happens? God says, now obey me, right? I mean, God says, hey, don't forget, I'm going to give you land. And it's in the form of a promise. But what does Abram say? <laughs> does he say, Amen, God, and I will keep diligently thy commandments and love you and make you my whole life. No. Check the raw nerve honesty of the Bible. He says, verse 7 and 8, in the middle there, but he said, Abram, O Lord God, how can I know? I love this. God's promises and more fear and doubt. Abram asked the question, but how can I know? How can I know, God? I love how honest the Bible is. Right after this emotionally high, I would, I would imagine, a connection with God. You know, when God reveals his converting power to your own heart and he quickens you, I mean, it really is like Charles Wesley wrote in And Can It Be This Morning, right? Thine eyes, you know, diffused, this light came, I, I, the, the chains fell off, I was set free, and I believed, right? I mean, when that happens, it is awesome. I think that's what happened when he stood in, the, uh, in those stars. But I think after that, as he realizes 
that what he is, where he is, and what it means now to live, uh, indwelling sin is still there. And I love how honest the Bible is. Right after it, there's this authentic conversion, and then there's this justified one doing what? Doubting God in his heart. Doubting God again. It's like how quickly the earthly flames of conversion kind of turn to glowing embers, right? I mean, this, this, you know, think of a fire, right? Whoosh, huge flame. And if it burns hot for long enough, what happens? It'll turn into coals. They can melt metal, sure. But they, they must be tended, fanned, and contained, right? But it's easy when you don't see the flames to, to trust that maybe, uh-oh, the coals are going out. I love what one hip-hop artist said, the way he said it. He said, what do you do when your life looks more like the book of Ruth than the book of Exodus? Abram just had an Exodus moment, right? Pharaoh's being defeated. He's, he's, the, he's set apart. Look at the stars. And now it's like, oh, man. But God, like, I don't have that land. I don't have that promise. I, can't, I don't have what you've said, so what am I supposed to do? Even after he's been credited with the righteousness of God, forever sealed, he still struggles with doubt. This helps me. I bet it helps you. Have you asked God, how can I know? I mean, I grew up in a culture that made me think, how can you know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved, right? And I got pelted in my own conversion with doubts, sometimes by teachers. I mean, our, our Bible teachers teach this often to a default. Our own mind teaches us this. Some people around us, we demand to have an answer. We really want to know. Maybe you've asked this. Maybe you've asked other questions. If it's not, how can I know that I'm saved? Maybe you've asked, how can I know that I'm in your will? Show me, God. Or maybe it's, hey, where are you, God? Why are you not listening, God? Why are you so distant, God? Why does my soul reject your promises, God? Why is this circumstance not changing, God? How long do I have to have this sin in my life, God? Where are your promises, God? Why do you hide your face from me, God? Where are you? More of God's promises lead Abram to more honest fear and doubt. Before our final point, look what happens next. It would be, it would be incredible, literally not able to be credited uh, if it hadn't happened. I think it would be entirely unbelievable what we're going to uh, see here in conclusion for, were it not for God giving belief in it. Our last point is God's promises applied. God's promises applied. Remember, we've heard His promises. We've beheld the doubt. We've seen His promises realized in the heart. We've seen some more promises now and still more fear, more doubt. But man, in closing this morning, we get to now behold the application. God's promises applied to Abram. Now, verse 9 through 11 is weird. If we're honest about this passage for us to hear God say, you know, remember Abram just cried out, God, how long, Lord? I mean, what's going on? What are you doing? How can I know? And here's God's answer. Bring me a cow, three years old. Bring me a female goat, three years old. Bring me a ram, three years old. A turtle dove, a young pigeon. Now Abram, it says, brought these to God and cut them in half. So go ahead, in your own mind, envision Abram slaughtering and cutting in half a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, a female goat. He's cutting them with a knife, spilling their blood, spilling their entrails, spilling all that they are. As he saws them in asunder, he, he 
cuts them, and the Bible text says he puts each half over against the other. In other words, he puts half of the body of one animal over here and its other half over here, and he does that for all of them in this way that there's this scene now that has been laid out where these empty, entrailed, nasty, bloody, gross animals have now been slaughtered, and, uh, and they've, been, they've, they've become gross in the sense that now they're spread out there. And he did this. Um, but he did not cut the birds in half. So at least the birds that died only were, were laid there. But nonetheless, you've got these dead animals everywhere. Now, God then is up to something, obviously. Now, why? Why does Abraham obey him like it's no big deal uh, and just do this? Well, the context helps. Uh, in times like this, kings would make contracts with one another in this way. So this is the way that most scholars agree that in this day, this is how Abram would have understood. Nations and kingdoms would make deals and, and covenants and contracts together on these terms. And what they would do is they would go and they would get these animals just like he's done. And what would happen is, is each nation would, leader would walk through the pieces with witnesses there. And as they walked through the animals, blood and things spilled, they would, they would say the, the, the plans of the contract, they would, the agreement. So if so and so nation agrees to give so much of this resource, this nation will so, so defend them in battle, and this is the terms. And both parties walk through the pieces declaring that if we don't do what we are saying we're going to do in this contract, may we be like these animals. It's pretty effective, right? If I can't do what I said I would do, I'm going to be like these, and the other party would have the right to slaughter that person and kill them if they did not come through on their contract. The text is beginning to make more sense now, right? This is an effective way of making contracts. So for us today, we make these ideas, uh, we communicate these ideas, not with spilt blood of animals, but with pens, right? So the power of the pen still says that when you sign the line on a military agreement, you're saying the United States government and its military, you are theirs. You sign that, and they are in control of you, barring you do what you say you'll do in the contract, and barring that they'll do what they say. And so you make this and what happens? Uncle Sam has you, right? Or in marriage. Granted, divorce makes this harder to see. I think we'd have a lot less divorces if we chose to use what the Bible does, right? But nonetheless, we make our contracts and we say, I'm not going to leave or forsake you, sickness, death, all those things. And then the government wants us to print out a piece of paper called a license and we better write it. And we better sign with a witness that was there to say, I am making this decision and I will not leave this person. But if I do, let there be legal, let there be consequences, so you and I, we understand it and it's evolved. But this is the way that in Abram's day, God made this uh, covenant with him. And he understood it. God uses the animals, which I think is neat, that will actually be instituted in the law for hundreds and hundreds of years to come. All right? So God uses these animals uh, and tells Abram to get them. He's communicating in a way that he understands. How do we apply the, God, the promises of God? Well, what's awesome is, is that God applies them. God makes sense of his own promises. He reveals to Abram in a way that he understands the beginning, under the, the, the first thoughts of how to apply God's promises in his life. Now, do not skip Abram's obedience here. Notice, God said and Abraham did it. That's very important. I think it's evidence of, of, of fruit. I think it's, if anybody could examine this faith, this what seems to be really weak faith of Abram, they can see at least here he's making an attempt to obey God's commands, Right? I mean, look at verse 11. When the birds come down on the carcasses, what does Abram do? He drove them away. I, I love this because I think God is making a covenant promise with Abram here, and it's not a contract. But, but, we may, uh, but 
you know, he may not realize that yet. And verse 11 shows that he, he does have some say in it. Like, he has some responsibility. Could you imagine how hard it would have been to get all those animals? Can you imagine how nasty, the sweaty, hard labor of cutting through bone, flesh, and tissue? Can you imagine, like, then sitting there among them, and if birds are wanting to come, either they're stinking, or at least they've noticed that there's a chance to eat here. And Abram is going and getting them away. There's a lot of work that's involved with this process. Consider the grime, the sweat, the literal blood, and the keeping watch. I think these birds of prey, for me, when I read this, and I think about Jesus' teaching, if Abram is really a born-again you know, believer, he's got the seed sown in him in such a way that it cannot be taken. It's going to produce fruit. And if he's going to believe that, I think the, these birds could maybe be you know, Satan's attempt to come and steal the truth. Maybe it's, it's the thorns and the thistles of life starting to creep up around that promise. Maybe it's the, the sunlight of persecution. I don't know, but the, the question of verse 11 is, can Abraham endure this as he makes them go away? Why, look at verse 12. What happens? Well, sun, the sun goes dark. Okay, the sun was going down. A deep sleep, it says, fell on Abram. This is the same uh, idea that God has done just a few chapters before where God called, caused his first son, Adam, to be in a deep sleep and to, and to do a work of giving him his wife, Eve, from his own Rib, And here it's God that, that then when the sun goes down is, is putting this deep sleep. But look what comes with it in verse 12. Uh, deeper into this sleep, there's this dreadful great darkness that falls upon Abram. Why darkness? Why dread? This shows Abram and us today that before eternal joy, before the, the realization that God's has been applied to you, like before the fulfillment, there's trial. In other words, why we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment is because all of us with the confession, confessing hearts, we always believe that sin brings death. It, it brings death. And Abram has seen it. Now he, in his own heart, feels it, the, the dread and the cost of disobeying God. It's always there. Indwelling sin demands us at times to see that we're still sinners. Even as we're born again, we, we have this indwelling sin. It's the same for us. Now, in this darkness, God gives a 400-year reference to prophecy. And for time's sake, we can't study verses 13 through 16 in depth. But, but I want you to understand that what God says will happen. It's spot on. It's talking about the Egyptian slavery. It's talking about the 400 years there. But now look with me at verse 17. How does God apply the promise? Well, when the sun had gone down and it was still dark, it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. You should underline that. Note the word covenant. This is unfathomable, unbelievable. No one in human history then, now, and definitely not Abraham in this moment would have thought that this would happen. God, God, the creator of the cosmos, is willing to make a covenant with man. Not a contract, a covenant. Binding himself to man in this way. And I think here, friend, when we're trying to apply the promises of God, this is where the beauty of the gospel is in this text. If you don't get anything from this sermon this morning, I pray you get this part. Okay, Jesus is alive and he's, and he's, and he's showing how he's making penal substitutionary atonement for sinners who need it, who really need to believe their sins are forgiven. And he's doing it on every page of scripture. And here, when this smoking pot and this flaming torch show up, it's a physical representation of God. It's called a theophany. 
Um, it's a, it's, it's Theo, God, and you know, this inward phony, you know, it's to appear or manifest. So God manifests. And what's amazing about this word is it's, it's been, it's going to be seen hereafter. So the smoking fire pot here is a representation of God. Uh, the same word when uh, the earlier, when a flaming sword was keeping Adam and Eve banished from the garden, it was that same fiery word. And to come, uh, it's going to be like the fire that consumes the burning bush as Moses stands there. And God's holiness doesn't consume the bush, but it burns. Same word. Okay, the pillar of fire that leads God's people out of Egypt by, by night, smoke by day. Same word. Like the fire on the top of Mount Sinai where God declares His judgment and everyone backs away from the mountain for fear of death, that fire is the same word here. It's the same word. Okay, this is what we call a theophany. Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration, when you, when you get to the, the radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews 3 and the idea of this flaming light of God, it's a biblical theology all the way through the Scriptures pointing us to this absolutely unbelievable reality that our God, creator of all things, can immerse Himself in a physical representation. And He does it right here in front of Abram's eyes. And what does God do? He walks through the pieces. God declares that He will be like these animals if he doesn't keep the promises he's made to Abram. That's amazing, right? I mean, just apply it, beloved. Like, apply the fact that, see through Abram's eyes that God is walking through the, the flame. He's walking through, you know, he's walking through the, the curse. He's walking through the, 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 the death. For God is a covenant-making God. Now, that is amazing alone, right? But this next part to me is absolutely unbelievable because the text goes on after this to, to continue. It's that the flaming pot and the smoking, the, excuse me, the smoking pot and the flaming torch that pass through. In verse 17, and then in verse 18, when it says, On that day we made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, and then the passage finishes. You know what's amazing about this, this passage? Abram doesn't walk through it. He doesn't. He witnesses God walking through it, and then he doesn't walk through it. Why? Because God is saying that, Abram, when I've made a covenant with you and I've set my love on you, Abram, there is no way that my promises will fail. I am the covenant. I'm the covenant maker. I'm the covenant keeper. I'm the one who can say always I'm perfect and just in every way. And you're not. You would walk through these pieces and bring the just condemnation that is upon you. And you would fail this half of the covenant all the time. So you will not walk through it. You will see me walk through it. And God applies it to Abram's heart. You know, it's easy to end on Jesus with this sermon, isn't it? God crosses the cosmos and the stars and the heavens of promise and He's born in a manger as a baby from a virgin. He grows in perfection, never failing to sin. Never suffering as sin makes us suffer so much because He was sinless. And he was sinned against greatly, right? Jesus was sinned against immensely in his ministry. Worse 
in the days leading up to his death, and most of all in the darkest hour. And just as darkness descended on these pieces, so for three hours on Calvary, the sun, eclipsed by the judgment of God, God tears his own son apart. Blood, water, torn flesh, beaten, unrecognizable. Isaiah would prophesy 900 years before it and say they would look upon him and not know what he looked like. And God, walking through the pieces on, on the behalf of his children, Jesus ripped apart like these animals. His side pierced. The Son of God killed. God fulfilled his covenant. His covenant promise to Abram applied. Applied. Do not fear. I'm your shield. I will give you a people. I will make you great. Why? Because I'm great. I'm so great. I'll demonstrate it in this way. Not that you love me, but that I love you. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. One that he finalized in the cross. That he proved bigger with in, in the resurrection. Abram is the same Abram who will have a son named Isaac go up a mountain with him and believe so much. I mean, I think God applied the gospel to this guy's life so much that Hebrews says he would take a knife and be willing to kill his own son. Why? Because he believed that God would raise him from the dead. If you study Abram beyond chapter 15, you see resurrection life. You see a keeping of God's commandments. You see a growing of God's church. You see the fulfillment of all the things you and I know. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul wants to remind us all, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. If you want to apply the promises of God, do not get away from the atonement. Look and look again and look again and look again. I know it is so hard in my own heart I mean, in many ways, I'm preaching this sermon this morning because of it. It's so hard to get your eyes up on Jesus and let, and, let, and let God get the anchor down. But when that happens, you can be satisfied. You can be satisfied in God. I think that's what happened with Abraham here. We don't have a stomach for all the list of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cabanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and all the other Zites, Right? Uh, we don't have the, the vision to see what God will do to the ends of the earth. We, we, that is hidden from us until we see perfectly that Jesus, the one who hides himself you know, behind obedience, the one who loves you, became sin for you. So that what? So that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Abram saw it. God credited righteousness. And in his doubts where that would be under attack, he was reminded, I've atoned for you. So at every turn, remember me. Right? Remember me. In church, if there's anything you and I get to gather around, it's the mysterious providence of God. Somehow, God has let the anchor down in our hearts at Redemption Baptist Church. Somehow, those of us here who have covenanted together and are striving in obedience in this church to honor God and keep His commandments and to love neighbor as self, somehow, God has got that anchor down. And God knew we'd forget it often. So He put it in the Bible over and over and over again. And then when Jesus showed up, He said, hey, you're going to forget this a lot. So do it. Every time you do it in remembrance of me and do it often. Do it often. Now, the, the error is to think we crucify Jesus actually over and over again. No, no, no. The mystery of God's providence that we're about to sing about is, is that God can supplant himself deep into the trials that would wound you so much and hurt so bad that it would cause you to get your eyes to Calvary where the one was already been wounded for it ultimately. Why? So you can endure because he's not still on the cross, right? He's risen. He's risen indeed. We'll celebrate this until we go to meet him. And then what do we do? We eat again with him, right? We see him face to face. 
Right now, we must apply the promises of God day in and day out. Right now, we must seek to understand. Right now, we study and devote ourselves to the Scriptures. Because why? Because they bring us the assurance that we've talked about. Pardon. Pardon. So, as I pray and we ask God again to help us worship, let's remember as we sing about His providence that He loves. Right? Oh, how He loves us. Secondly, let's remember that He calls us to confess our sins to Him. Let's believe together that God can pardon us. And then as we're singing the doxology today and we head out, let's remember that, that there is a whole plan He has and it's beautiful. Let me pray for us. God, thank You for Your promises which like mercy and like clouds that appear gray and Your sovereignty demands that You're in control even of the evil deeds and the hard things that are going on in our lives, circumstances out of our control. You're the one who plants Your feet upon that storm and You ride sovereignly over it, God. And when those deep gray clouds of doubt and unbelief seem to be the only thing above our head, help us to believe that with mercy they will burst with grace. They will pour forth the understanding that when we look inward or we look anywhere else, God, besides to you, we have failed in our vision. So God, will you get our eyes up again to Calvary? Give us the, the, the gusto to confess sin and faith, believing you're forgiving us. Help us, God, to hear the words of pardon today and to partake in the Lord's Supper by faith. Father, I pray if any here just lacks the regenerating work, the powerful work that you revealed to Abram in the stars, may they see it today. May they hear it in the songs sung. May they hear it in the prayers prayed, the word preached. And now, Lord, when we take the Lord's Supper and the words seen in the elements, God, will you convert them and bring them to the happy knowledge of the truth so that they too can share, share God in the wonderful hope we have in you. We ask all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.